Deuteronomy chapter 21. Uh, we are continuing our survey through the book of Deuteronomy, and um, uh, this evening we'll begin in chapter 21. And one of the things that I decided to do, because I think it would be helpful for you, is uh, it, it can seem a little bit disjointed because we're not reading every verse. Uh, there's there's no way we can do a survey. We would be here for a year trying to get through um, uh, Deuteronomy. But the main thing we want to extract is from these these messages, these sermons that Moses is delivering to the people. Now remember, uh, they're getting ready to go into the promised land. And so God is laying a, a framework. He's, he's laying a, a judicial framework for them. In other words, what their law is going to look like once they go into Canaan. He's laying a spiritual framework of how they are to relate to one another, how they relate to God, how they deal with foreigners that are in the land. Because remember, Moses, per the word of the Lord, has told him, look, don't, don't intermarry with these folks. Don't, don't engage with them because they will lead you into harlotry or into idolatrous um, worship. And so God's been laying that out. There's practical things about how you're to deal with your, your, your cattle, your servants, your fields, uh, how you deal with the poor, the destitute. We talk about the cities of refuge for those who commit involuntary manslaughter. It, it's accidental uh, killings. They have a place where they can go to. So, so what's God, what God is doing is he's saying, I, I'm going to give you uh, not just a foundation, but I'm going to give you a whole structure for you as a nation. So I'm going to give you a political structure. I'm going to give you a spiritual structure. I'm going to give you a judicial structure, uh, a legislative structure that will come through uh, the, the tribe of the Levites, uh, a, a worship structure. And so God is outlining or defining the nation. And, and what kind of a nation he desires for it to be, what it's going to look like, and how it's going to function. And so when you get to chapter 21, we're still dealing with uh, the judicial part of that. And uh, the, the theme really uh, for chapter 21 has a number of, of themes that, that come out of the chapter. Uh, how to deal with unresolved murders, the fair treatment of women that are captured and brought into captivity, how they're supposed to treat them, and even that they can take them as a wife if they want to, but uh, one of the things they, they're told to do is they shave their head, they, they bring them into their home, they can't have anything to do with them uh, for several months, and then if they decide that they want to marry them, then they can marry them, they can take them as a wife, but they're to treat them uh, honorably, but they're also supposed to bring them into the faith or an understanding of what it means to be Jewish. If not, uh, they can't sell them. They can't profit, but they can release them. They're free to go their way uh, if they decide that they don't want to want to marry them. There's the, the, the right of the firstborn that comes into the family. He talks about that in verses 15 through 17. Uh, in verse 18, and uh, we could probably relate to this, he talks about the rebellious son. He says, If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and and uh, who, when they have chastened him, will not heed them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him, bring him out, 
to the elders of the city, to the gate of the city, and they shall say to the elders of the city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious, and he will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Now you get some idea of what's going on with this son. He's not only rebellious, but he's a glutton and he's a drunkard. And then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So when you read something like this, you think, wow, man, that was severe judgment. But you don't want to miss the fact that mom and dad have relentlessly been trying to bring him out of his rebellion. And so what Moses is telling the children of Israel is, you know what, there's consequences for rebellious behavior. You can live a rebellious life. You can resist God, but you're going to pay a price for that. Now, one of the things that we don't want to miss there in chapter 21 is this, is that there is these underlying themes. There's the underlying theme of atonement. If you go back to the beginning of the chapter, it says, If anyone is found slain lying in the field uh, in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess, and it is not known who killed him, then your elders and your judges shall go out and measure the distance from the slain man to the surrounding cities. And it shall be that the elders of the city nearest to the slain man will take a heifer which has not been worked and which is not pulled with a yoke. And the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley flowing with water, which is is neither plowed nor sown, and they shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. And then the priests and the sons of Levi shall come near, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord by their word. Every controversy, every assault uh, shall be settled. And the elders of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley, and they shall answer and say, Our hands have not shed this blood, nor have our eyes seen it. And so it's this whole idea of they're going to go, they're going to measure out in cities that where the killer could have come from, and they're going to ask the elders of those cities, we're going to ask you to come, we're going to ask you to make a sacrifice, but we're going to ask you also to make an oath. And to declare not only that you don't have any knowledge of this, but you don't have any knowledge of one who has done this. And so in a sense, it's this, this idea of, of, uh, of atonement. It's an, an atoning for an, an unsolved death or killing. In 1 John 2.2, 2, it says, He himself is the propitiation of our sins, and not for our sins also, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, we have a, a like situation in that we have a Redeemer because we were dead, right, in our trespasses and sins. We were separated from God. We know that, that the result of that was all the way back to Genesis with the fall of Adam and Eve. So it was brought upon us or it was perpetrated upon us that we are born into this world fallen and sinful. And so what does God do? Well, God makes that ultimate sacrifice for us and he does that through his son, Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.13 reminds us that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so Jesus is one who 
makes atonement for us. So in chapter 21, you have this unresolved murder, the fair treatment of captured women, the right of the firstborn, dealing with the rebellious son, a display of of those who have been executed, they're to be displayed publicly. But in the midst of this is atonement. Always atonement. So from Genesis to Revelation, you have this theme that just keeps running through Scripture, and it's the atoning work of, of, of God through Jesus Christ. One of the other things that you find here in chapter 21 is when you get down to the the end there in verse 22, it says, If a man has committed a sin deserving of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance for he who is hanged is accursed of God. And so when you find that reference in Galatians, he ties that back to Deuteronomy chapter 21, because he uses the exact same words. Curses is everyone who hangs on a tree. So in chapter 21, you just you get that sense of, okay, they're still dealing with with the law, these judicial issues. When you get over to chapter 22, then now you're going to start talking about miscellaneous laws. And he says in verse 1 of 22, You shall not see your brother's ox or a sheep going astray and hide yourself from them. You shall certainly bring them back to your brother. And if your brother is not near you or if you do not know him, then you shall bring it to your own house and it shall remain with you until your brother seeks it and then you shall restore it to him. So in other words, be conscientious. And it'll be a good, good neighbor. Here he's talking about brother. A situation here not too long ago, and uh, I was um, had gotten had gone to the hardware store, had gone to get something to eat, and I was outside and sitting in an outside area. There were a bunch of tables, and there was a family that was sitting over next to me, and then there were other people around, and they had small children, and they were eating, and the kids were restless. They get up to leave, and when they left, they actually were getting into their car, had started the engine, and I noticed, I looked over the table, and the wife had left her purse sitting in a chair and the cell phone, and so I jumped up, and I ran over, and I'm and the, the wife was kind of, she turned to her husband and said, don't stop, don't stop. I don't know. I know I look a little suspicious, but but anyway, I just said, no, 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 you left your phone in your purse. And, of course, he got out and he was very thankful. And she rolled down the window and she said, you know, I'm sorry. I just I didn't know who you were. And I said, well, I'm nobody. But I said, I, I just didn't want you to drive off and leave leave your stuff. And it's just that kind of an idea that's being talked about here. He even talks about seeing your brother's donkey or his ox and they fall along the road and and he says, and hide yourself from them. You shall surely help him lift them up again. There's a, an account of this that Jesus gives in the, New, in the New Testament. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And, and this whole idea of when you see a need, and we live in the kind of world today where a lot of people are, are suspect 
they, they get kind of worried. They're not sure if they want to step into situations when someone's hurt or when something's going on. And it's easy to just kind of turn away and ignore the situation. And what what God is saying through Moses to the people is he said, be not only aware, but be concerned about others. If you can lend a hand, if you can help out, if you if it can be the, the simplest thing. I was at the hardware store uh, earlier today, and, and as I was coming out, there was an elderly gentleman like myself. I put myself in that category. And uh, he had four sheets of plywood, and he was trying to get them up in the back of his truck, and, and he was having a, a difficult time. I, I had a conversation with him later. I found out he had just had a, a knee replacement. He shouldn't have been doing this anyway, but anyhow. And so I said, well, here, let me help you. And so I helped him. It took, what, a minute and a half of my time? But do we oftentimes think in those terms of, you know, how can I extend my helping hand? How can I do something? Or am I looking for those opportunities to be able to do those things? And so... When you look at, at chapter 22, you, you, you have these themes that begin to come out. Caring for your brother's property, preserving natural distinctions, violations of, of proper sexual conduct, uh, illustrations of, of biblical principles of purity. Those are all found in this chapter. You get down to verse uh, 11. He says, you shall not wear a garment of different sorts such as wool and linen mixed together you shall make tassels you shall make tassels on your corners of your clothing with which you cover yourself if any man takes a wife and goes to her and, and detests her and charges her with shameful conduct and brings a bad name on her and says, I took this woman when I, when I came to her, I found she was not a virgin. Then the father, and he goes through and he, he's describing all of these things, he, even about how you adorn yourself. In other words, don't be flashy. <laughs> you know, be ordinary. Why? Well, because we understand the principles in Scripture that it's imperative that attention is not being drawn to us because we want the attention to go where? We want it to go to the Lord. We want it to go to Jesus. We want Him to get the attention. This whole idea here in this chapter, because when you get down to verse 22, He says, If a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die, and, and the man that lay with the woman and the woman, so shall you put away the evil from Israel. If a young woman who is a virgin is betrothed to a husband and a man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he humbled his neighbor's wife, so you shall put away the evil from among you. So he's talking about fornication. He's talking about adultery. He's talking about rape. You know, and for the young woman, he says, if she doesn't cry out, in other words, she has to cry out for help. She ha and we have the, the Me Too movement today. And, and it's, I got some interesting input from pastors and others about this. But anytime in our culture we have an opportunity to preserve the sanctity of women, to make sure 
that they are not minimalized? Are they not degraded in any way? I think that anyone who understands the Word of God should be a champion of that. Now, I know that there's controversy around the Me Too movement because so well, they can just make accusations and, and, and the other person can't defend themselves. And I know that that can happen, but for the most part, that's not what we're talking about. We've seen the perversity within our culture when it comes to sexual immorality. We're bombarded with it all the time. There are movies, there are programs on TV that exclusively are dedicated to promoting sexual promiscuity. I mean, it's, it's all around us. And what it does is oftentimes it, it, it demeans women. It, it puts them down. And the Word of God tells us that it's imperative that we understand that Jesus looks at all of us the same way. He has the same perspective as to who we are. And so, you know, what he's doing here, what Moses is saying is, look, you have to understand the importance of, of propriety, of making sure that no one is being marginalized. No one's being put down. In verse 28 of chapter 22, he says, If a man finds a young woman who is a virgin who is not betrothed, and he seizes her and lies with her, and they are found out, then the man who lay with her shall give to the young woman, Father, 50 shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife because he has humbled her, and he shall not be permitted to divorce her all his days. A man shall not take his father's wife nor uncover his father's bed. Verse 30 surfaces in 1 Corinthians. It surfaces there because of a young man who, and, and there's debate about whether it's his stepmother or whether it was his real mother, but he goes into her, he's sexually intimate with her, and Paul writes to the church and he said, hey, you can't smooth this over. You need to deal with this. This is, this is improper. It violates the word of God. And, and you can't allow these sins to go hidden within the framework of the church. And so here is an example where he says, a man shall not take his father's wife nor uncover his father's bed. And so it goes to the heart of what Paul was dealing with there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. One of the things that I think stands out here in chapter 22 as you read through these verses and it's talking about elders and it talks about fathers, it talks about husbands, it talks about daughters, it talks about virgins. This chapter is, is focusing in that direction and one of the things that you begin to realize is that the Word of God wants us to understand the significance and the importance of maintaining our spiritual holiness, who we are before God. Hosea 1-2 says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go and take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. And if, you, if you've ever read, read the book of Hosea, uh, 
Hosea was like, you know, he wants a wife, but he wants a pure wife and a holy wife. And what God is doing is he says, I'm going to show through Hosea marrying a harlot, a prostitute. I'm going to show the relationship that Israel has entered into with me. They've played the harlot. They've gone after every false god, every unholy uh, act. And so that was the lesson. That was the example of what immorality does, not just between individuals, but between God and a whole nation. In John 4, verses 17 and 18, we know that whole conversation that Jesus has with the woman at the well. Jesus goes down to Samaria. He's going there to draw water. His disciples are, are beleaguered. They're just like, why, why are we even going? We never go down that way. We never travel that way. But once again, they're going to go there. And here's this woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And, and the woman, you know, is, is drawing water. And Jesus asks her for a drink. And, and she talks about, you know, this is our, our, our father's well. And, and have this whole discussion. And Jesus says, well, you know, I want to, I want to bring you water that you know not of. Water that, that, that will spring up and give you life. But they're having this conversation. And Jesus says, well, go get your husband. And she says, well, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you have said correctly, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one whom you have is not your husband. This you have said truly. So who is Jesus engaging in a conversation with? Number one, he's going to a place where Jews never went. They would go miles out of their way not to travel through Samaria. But Jesus is saying, well, that's why we need to go to Samaria. That's why we need to go to Antioch. That's why we need to go to Pittsburgh. That's why we need to go to Oakland. That's why we need to go to Berlin, Germany and, and Tokyo, Japan. And that's why we need to go to the uttermost parts of the, of the world is because in those places, there are those who need to be delivered and set free from the bondage of sin, right? So Jesus is there in Samaria, and some would say, well, he was there just for that one woman. But no, he was there for that whole city. Because she went back into town, and she began bearing testimony of what God had just done for her. And she's bearing witness of Jesus, the Messiah, I love what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Now, exactly what does that mean? What does it mean for me to be a member of Christ? It means that I am in Christ and Christ is in me. How is that possible? How does that happen? Well, it happens through the indwelling Holy Spirit. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise until the day of redemption. So Christ is in me and I am in Christ. I have a relationship with him. And Paul says, shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. Now, he's using a literal example, Paul is, but there's a spiritual implication here in regards to what I join myself to. In other words, what I allow to become a part of me, a part of my everyday living, my everyday thought, my everyday actions. Unknowingly, I can be yoking myself with something 
that will begin to cause me to play the harlot or to, to, to separate my, my life or portions of my life from the Lord. So the implications here, this is all about law, chapter 21 and 22. It's just this continuing emphasis on the law. In chapter 23, we move into this idea of Moses speaking to the people. And I, and I, love, I love what he does here. He says, now, you know, we have some miscellaneous laws. We've got the major laws, but now let me give you some miscellaneous ones. He says, he who is emasculated by crushing or mutilation shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. One of illegitimate birth shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord. An Amorite or a Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Even the, to the tenth generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Because they did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you, Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. Nevertheless, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into the blessing for you because of the Lord your God who loves you. You shall not seek their peace nor their property all your days forever. You shall not abhor an Edomite for for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian because you were an alien in his land. The children of the third generation born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord. So what is he doing? He's saying, look, there's some restrictions on who is going to be able to enter the assembly. The assembly meaning what? Israel. To genuinely become a part of the nation. And he says, so I'm giving you some, some standards. Now, the great thing about the period of grace that we're in is we don't put any limitation on who can come and be a part of us. So when we show up here on Wednesday night, we open the doors and the doors are open to anybody that wants to come through the doors. Doesn't make any difference if they're an Edomite or a Moabite, any of the Enies or the Ites. Doesn't make any difference whether they're a Democrat or a Republican or an independent. Doesn't make any difference. Doesn't even make any difference to me about their sexual orientation. Doesn't make a bit of difference to me. Because I know that the grace of God is capable of changing or transforming anyone. And so whatever sin that beleaguers us, any sin that's in us or working against our relationship with God, he says that he's faithful and just to forgive us of what? Just some righteousness or just what we determine as being forgivable? No, he says of all unrighteousness. I'll I'll cleanse you. I'll forgive you of all unrighteousness. And so under the law, there were there were these prescribed prescriptions of who could come in and who could not come in. Once again, this is back to this idea of keeping the purity of the bloodline as they were coming in to Canaan. But now, under grace, not that we abandon the law, 
Not that we forsake the law, because the law is there to teach us and to show us our need for Jesus Christ. But under grace, now we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? Amen? There's none righteous. There's not a single one that's righteous. So we all need what Christ is offering. So Jesus, through the cross and shedding his blood and the resurrection, he bridges the gap between law and grace. And so we come to him and he he receives us and he's willing to cleanse us and he's willing to forgive us of those things that are unrighteous and ungodly and unholy. Gets even more practical down in verse 19 there of chapter 23. He says, You shall not charge interest to your brother, interest on money or food or anything that is lent out at interest. To a foreigner you may charge interest. Now, this is an interesting law that was being given or command that was being given. So he said to the brethren, you shouldn't be charging interest. So you can lend them money, but it's not at 2% or 5% or 10%. He says, but now the foreigner, you can. So he says within the household of faith, he said what you do is you minister to or you meet the need of those who are within the household of faith. So if Juan came to me and he needed to borrow 10000 or $100,000, if I had it to give and I were to lend that to him, he is not obligated to, to pay interest. I wouldn't even, biblically, I wouldn't even ask for interest. And some would say, well, but you know, you have it in an account and you're getting interest. Yeah, 0.75%. You know, <laughs> or maybe in a really good account, maybe 1.2%. But the point is not about the interest. The point is uh, understanding how we relate to those who are of the household of faith. So in our household of faith, our spiritual family, we, we extend help where it's, where it's possible. As a church here, we've lent money. And when we have done that, We've helped people with rent. We've helped them with phone bills, utility bills. We've done that through the years. And we never ask for that to be paid back. That's never a condition. And if, if it's incumbent upon their heart at some point and they want, to, they want to return that back to the church, praise God, that's fine. But we do that, we give that unconditionally. So it's not a loan. It's a love gift, and that's how it's always noted in our books. It's just a love gift that's been given. In verse 21 of chapter 23, he says, And when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be a sin to you. Now, that verse, I, I, I kind of got hung up on that one. There on verse 21. Simply because of this. First of all, what is the idea of making a vow? What does that really mean? When I say I'm going to make a vow to the Lord. Well, a vow is a verbal commitment. That's how it's best defined. 
So if I'm making a verbal commitment to the Lord, what is he saying? He says, you shall not delay in paying it. Or in other words, in doing it. So if the Holy Spirit puts something in my heart, if I see something in the Word of God that stirs my heart, and I move to make a vow or make a commitment to God, then what is Moses saying? He said, well, then get busy doing it. It's easy for me to say, well, you know, I'm going to do such and such. I'm going to go to such and such a place. Remember, we've seen this in James already. The man who says, tomorrow I'm going to go to such and such a city and I'm going to do such and such a thing. And Well, when we make a vow, before we make that commitment, ask yourself, am I willing to take the steps of faith to enact that? Am I willing to do that? It can be the simplest things, even in our relationship with one another. If someone, if someone has a need and we say, you know what, I'm going to help you with that, we need to expedite that as quickly as we possibly can. If we make that commitment, then let's, let's just step up and let's do it. And we do it without condition. We're not doing it to, to, to get money or to be recompensed or to be paid. No, we're just, hey, I, I have the ability to help you and minister to you and meet a need and and you know the lord put it on my heart i've made that vow before him and so i'm going to get busy i'm going to do that one of the vows that all christians make whether we oftentimes acknowledge it or recognize it is we've made a vow to go into the whole world and share the gospel that's a vow that's a commitment I mean, Jesus talked about it in Matthew 28 to his disciples. He said, not you might or you sort of can, but he says you need to go into the whole world. And he said, you make disciples and you baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus even went further in Acts 1.8 and he said, you know what I'm going to do is I've given you this command and I want you to make a vow or make a commitment to follow through with this. And I know that in your human ability, it may not seem possible. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you're going to be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the outermost parts of the earth. So the great thing about when when we make a vow or we make a commitment to the Lord, the great thing is this, is when we do that, God says, now you've made the vow, step out in faith, and I will give you the ability, the power through the Holy Spirit to accomplish that task. There have been things that I knew that God was telling me that I was supposed to do. I was supposed to, uh, you know, I, I, I made the vow. I made the commitment. And then I'd step back and I'd go, how am I going to do this? How am I going to accomplish this? And I would go back to the Lord in prayer. And the Lord said, just step out. As you step out, I will step in. Where you're weak, I'll be strong. Where you're without understanding, I'll give you knowledge. Where you think you're going to fail... I will show you that I'm successful. I can take you through. I can get you through. There's examples in Scripture. One of the best ones is when the disciples are out on the Sea of Galilee. The storm comes up. They're in the boat. They're crying. They're fearing for their lives. Oh, we're going to die. We're going to die, you know. And, And what is Jesus doing? He's sleeping. 
And he gets up and he looks around. He sees them. They're in a panicked state. And he says, oh, man. Dudes. He didn't use the word dudes, but I, he, if he lived today, he would have probably said, you know, look, where's your faith? Then he simply raises his hand and he says, storm, be still. That's a picture to me that if God tells me to step out, if I make that commitment in my heart, I may never speak a word, but I I make it in my mind and I make it in my spirit that God says, now get busy, get after it, go for it. You know, get out of the boat. Yeah, but Peter sank. Yeah, but Jesus was there to grab his hand. (laughs) You don't want to forget that part, right? Jesus didn't look at him and say, well, Peter, sorry. You just just didn't have enough faith. So, uh, hey, any of you other guys want to get out of the boat? No. No, he extended his hand and lifted him up. Chapter 24. Oh, one more thing in chapter 23. Uh, at the end, verse 24 says, When you come into your, your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure, but you shall not put any in your container. <laughs> the reason I laugh about this is, <laughs> my, y'all know about my lemon tree, my, my little lemon tree. And for some reason, it's not bearing fruit like it has. Interesting. But, one of my neighbors heard about from another neighbor about the lemon tree, asked if they could have some lemons. And I said, sure. I said, you know, just come on over. And uh, I said, I'll, and, and I'd already picked a bag, you know, like one of the plastic shopping bags. They showed up with the, the wife and the two kids, and each one of them was carrying like a big tub and they were there. They were going to pick my lemon tree clean. And I said, well, no, you know, I, I said, I've already picked some lemons. And, and I handed them to the little boy. And he looked at his mom and, and they looked so disappointed. But, you know, there's even a biblical precedent for this. Because he says, when you come into your neighbor's backyard, you may pick a, a fill of your lemons but you're not to take a container away. <laughs> so there's a biblical principle for everything, even when it comes to a lemon tree. Chapter 24. Now, chapter 24 uh, has some major themes. Uh, probably the most significant is he talks about marriage and divorce. Uh, gets into safeguards about life. Uh, consideration uh, for people who are in need. He says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanliness in her. And that word, uncleanliness, some detestable thing. So uh, it, it could be something that she's been hiding or holding back from him. It says... Uh, And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, 
If the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. When a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war or be charged with any business. He shall be free uh, at home one year and bring happiness to his wife whom he has taken. So he's, he's giving these instructions here in these opening verses about marriage and divorce. And this always begs the question, uh, because divorce is, is prominent in our culture today, and there are many uh, who have gone through divorce in their life. And the question is always, well, if you've gone through divorce, can you remarry? Some say, no, you can't remarry. Uh, what is the, the, the biblical standard? Well, one of the things that we find is in Matthew's gospel because Jesus, you know, he talks about divorce. And he says this about it. He says, Moses granted the decree of divorcement. But with God, from the beginning, it was not so. So divorce always has the element, not not completely, but it's a significant aspect of it. Divorce always has the element of the hardness of heart. Where you have two people, maybe there's been adultery or, or, or something in the relationship that has broken trust. Uh, it could be a number of things. And so... They they realize that now they, they want a divorce. But the biblical principle that should be at play always is reconciliation. So if someone comes to me, husband and wife comes to me and says, hey, we, we're going to divorce. We can't get along. My biblical responsibility is to try to reconcile that marriage, to reconcile that relationship. And I've heard people say, yeah, but if there's, man, if there's adultery, then that's it. I could never be with that person again. Well, the question then that we begin to ask ourselves is, are there sins in marriage that can't be forgiven? That, that we can't be cleansed of? That can't be reconciled before God? Now, if a husband and wife, say the husband is an adult, he's committed adultery on the wife, if they do divorce then according to what we see in Paul's teaching as well here in the Old Testament and even what Jesus said, well, the decree of divorcement was given and so it's binding. But I always strive to try to reconcile that marriage, try to make sure that there is healing in that marriage and oftentimes that doesn't happen. And there are those who divorce just because they don't want to be together. In California, we have a law. It's the un, unreconciled differences. You know, we just, yeah, we just can't get along. We couldn't decide on the color of the carpet. And so I, I, we're just going to dissolve our marriage. And we laugh about that, but it's, it happens. And, and so biblically, what happens here is Moses is saying, look, 
If you divorce a woman, you give her a decree of divorcement, she goes and marries another man and he dies, you, don't, you can't bring her back. You're not to do that. Because once that decree of divorcement was given, then the, the wife is no longer bound and the husband is no longer bound. Now, it gets very difficult theologically and doctrinally because then there are those theologians and pastors and even Christians will ask the question, well, what defines marriage? You know, what is a marriage? What seals a marriage biblically? Now, here in the state of California, they go get marriage license. Uh, I have to sign those. I have to document that. But is that what seals the marriage? Well, biblically, no. It's not a piece of paper. So whenever we, whenever someone gets married here in the church or I perform a marriage, I may make it perfectly clear, even in the premarital counseling, that you're getting married not before the state and not before people, not before your parents or your friends, but you're getting married before God. So you're entering into a divine, biblical institution. God is the one who created marriage. And he is the one who decided to create a man and a woman and to bring them together and the two shall become one flesh. So when the marriage is consummated is when the two come together and they physically have a relationship with one another, when they have sex with one another. But that is after they have had their vows or made their their vows before God. So when people stand up here and we're doing a, a, a wedding ceremony, I tell them, you're doing this before God. You're consecrating. You're, you're, you're declaring your love for one another before God. And I tell them, it's for life. It is a lifelong commitment. Now, Millie and I, in November, we've been married 51 years. If you ask Millie if she ever contemplated divorce, she would say, divorce, no, murder, yes, a few times. <laughs> but what's happened in our, in our culture today, in the world today, we've gotten this all upside down. And, and what has muddied the water is a number of things. One is premarital sex. You know, the Bible teaches abstinence. Not to be, if you're not married, you don't have sex together. Why? Well, because you're fornicating and fornication is a sin. And God says, so you're entering into your relationship physically having sexual relations with one another in violation to the word of God. So you're, you're acting out in sin. And so then... You, you know, how do you bring that into the marriage understanding or the marriage relationship? And this is why, and, and I see it all the time. I went through this with my, my youngest daughter. I mean, she lived with a, with a man for five years before she got married. And we would have conversations and, and, and she would tell me, well, you know, Dad, that's just kind of what everybody's doing. You know, a lot of young people, Ah, we're not going to get married. We're just going to 
we're just going to live together. We're just going to cohabit. We're just we're going to have sex. We're we're even we're going to have kids, and we're not going to marry. So is that a violation against society or against culture? No, but it goes contrary to a biblical model of what God intended: one man, one woman, entering in to marriage, the, the the two becoming one, and consecrating that before God. Now, it even goes deeper than that. We don't have a lot of time to get into this, but, you know, it's the whole same-sex thing. You know, I don't find any place in the Word of God, even remotely, where you can justify same-sex marriage. And that's not a put-down of homosexuals or or lesbians. That's not, I'm not putting them down. I'm just saying there's no... There's no biblical justification for that. Something that has been the standard for 6,700 years is one man, one woman being married. And you can pass all the laws you want. You can have the Supreme Court say that it's fine, it's one, but it still runs contradictory to the Word of God. Why is this so important? Because the sanctity of marriage was was first born out in the Garden of Eden, where God has Adam and Eve. So from the very beginning, it was God's design and God's intent that it was one man and one woman, and that they would come together, they would consummate their, their relationship with one another before God. And what was the byproduct of that? Number one, they're being pleasing to God. Number two, they're being obedient to the Word of God. Number three, they are now going to procreate. We've already seen it here in Deuteronomy about those that are illegitimate, illegitimate children. Up to the seventh and tenth generation, they couldn't come into the assembly because they were marked. There was a stigma on on illegitimate children up until probably about 30 years ago. You know, if you were illegitimate, you know, that society would look at you differently. And in many cultures around the world, it still is. So, do people have sex outside of marriage? Oh, yeah. Do they have children? Yes, they do. Do they live together and they don't marry? Yes, they do. And it even goes on in the church. So does that mean that we say, well, it's okay, you know, because they're doing it? Do we back away from the Word of God and just say, well, no, what we, and this is what I did, you know, and I'm talking very personally here. What I did with my daughter was when it would come up in conversations, I would just lovingly encourage her and say, you know, you know what the Bible teaches. And, and, And not you would bless me and your mom, but I believe you would bless the Lord if the two of you were to get married. And I remember I got I got the phone call last October. She called and she said, Dad, <laughs> I thought she was going to say, Dad, you win. But she said, Dad, you know what? We've just been talking and, you know, we decided we want to get married and, and we want you to do it. We want you to do the wedding. So last November we went up and, you know, we did the wedding and you know, it was it was wonderful. It was awesome. And since we've I've had conversations with her, 
And it, and she said, you know, it, it brought a peace to both of us because we realized that, you know what, we're doing the right thing before the Lord. 